Well, this morning we're going to be spending time into the first epistle of the Apostle Peter to the dispersion of the diaspora. Is this the churches that were dispersed to Galatia, <clears throat> uh, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia? This is known as modern Turkey today. We're going to be spending time in the introduction to this letter. We're going to go and walk through this letter uh, and try to follow the intention of the author of the letter, which is the Apostle Peter. Uh, we know that at the end, the author is the Holy Spirit. So if you bow your heads, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Father. Father, we bring our worship to you. And although, Father, that in our limitations may not be perfect, Lord, we offer with a sincere heart in devotion to you and faithfulness to your word. Our Lord Jesus made this acceptable. And it is only through faith in Him that we come before You, Lord. We ask this morning, Father, that You open our hearts. You give us wisdom and understanding to Your Word. Give us understanding, Father. Give us insight. Speak to us through Your Word, Father. Feed our souls. We are thirsty. We are hungry for You. Comfort our hearts, Father. Help us. We ask all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, before I go into the exegesis of the scripture, I want us to have a historical foundation and understanding of this letter. It is important for us to know uh, what is the occasion of the letter? Why was the letter written? What was the provocation for the letter? This will help us to have a biblical and historical understanding of the letter. What we want to do is we want to capture the intention of the letter. And one of the rules of biblical interpretation is that we ought to understand the letter in the manner that those who were the first recipient of the letter would have understood it. That is imper imperative for, for us to grasp the meaning of the letter. This is very important for us. Also, to understand the genre of each portion of scripture that we are spending time with. It is important for us to understand whether we are reading poetry or historical narrative, or if we are reading an epistle. Why is this important? It is because the genre 
it speaks us to the nature of the book and how it is to be understood. In this case, we are studying an epistle. And an epistle, in essence, is a document that is designed to teach you doctrinal teaching. It is designed to teach you how you ought to think and how you ought to understand God. So this is very important for us to understand that we are reading an epistle and, and a document that is doctrinal in nature. It is uh, directly applied to the hearer. So it is imperative for us to have these foundational understandings of this letter and any other document in the Bible. Remember that the Bible is a compilation of 66 books divinely inspired, put together by a group of fallible men. And that's important. Why? Because we must recognize that the authority of the Scripture stands in the nature of Scripture itself rather than from men. Well, that was the position of the Catholic Church in the beginning when the canon was being assembled. Uh, after that, when the Catholic Church, the, the Church began to deviate from the apostolic teachings, they sat themselves above Scripture. They said, we have established a canon. Rather, the position of the first uh, uh, compilers of Scripture, the first councils, their position was, was, we have recognized these books as inspired. That is, they submitted themselves under the Scripture, rather of saying, we have established this book. It's a big difference because it's a question of authority. So this is foundational for us to know and understand as we go into uh, studying the scriptures. Now, the first fact I want to give you is that this letter is believed to have been written somewhere between the decade of the 60s, the first 60s AD. Many historians and theologians agree that this letter was the result of the great persecution that ensued as the result of Nero burning Rome and burning the Christians for it. So as a consequence of that, there was a great persecution that uh, ensued in Asia Minor, which is the region of Cappadocia, Galatia, and all these other cities and regions that are mentioned in the letter. And this is important for us. So the purpose of the letter is this. The letter deals with persecution and sufferings for the sake of the name of Christ. The letter deals with persecution and sufferings for the sake of the name of Christ. Now it is important to bear in mind as we go on and pursue this letter that one of the accusations leveled against the believers was this. If God was really with you, you will not be suffering. This was one of the accusations leveled to the, uh, upon the early Christians. Because you see, in the Jewish understanding of the sovereignty of God, they associated tragedy and sufferings with God's disapproval. Why they came to that conclusion was part of their issues because God told them in the law of Moses that if they broke the law, they will be cursed. So they associated sufferings 
and trials and tribulations with God's displeasement. You know, that's the accusation that is brought to Job. For example, when he is uh, suffering, they, uh, his friends accuse him. Job, repent. There's got to be sin in your life because all these things that are happening are happening. They have to be happening to you because there's got to be sin in your life. God is punishing you. So when the believers suffer this persecution, the Jewish community in, 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 uh, in these places accuse the Christians of being under the curse of God. They accuse them of heresy, right? Because they have deviated from Judaism according to what they thought. So this is important for us to understand in the light of us observing this letter. Because the Christians were accused of this. They were accused of being cursed by God. That's why you're suffering. That's why you're being persecuted. Because your God has abandoned you. Now, this is not strange for us. And we must understand that this is imperative because the same was said of our Savior. For example, in Matthew 27, verse 43, the Pharisees said this of our Savior when He hung from the cross. They said this, He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Right, when when they saw the Messiah from the cross, they said, "Whoa, he trusted in God. If he is the Son of God, let him come down from the cross." Why? Because the Scripture says clear, very clearly, that he who hangs from a tree is cursed by God, and the whole land is defiled by him. Right, and this is important for us. Doctor Arsis Prol said in regards to this reality that indeed. Christ became a curse for us. That all that it is the penalty provided in the Old Testament for the violation of the law of God, all the curses were placed upon Him. And indeed, He was cursed. But we must understand that He was yet innocent. But this, nevertheless, is the accusation placed upon the believers. You're suffering and that means God is not pleased with you. You're suffering because you're cursed. And the pagan worldview was not far from it either. The Greeks saw sufferings and illness, illnesses as also the, the retaliation of the gods. That's why they sacrificed in fear to the gods. Because when earthquakes and famines, pestilence came to the land, they attributed to the displacements of the gods. And they attributed these tragedies and, and, and calamities to the Christians. Because the Christians did not worship their gods. Therefore, the Christians to the lion. And this is important for us to see and understand the context of this letter. The occasion. Why did the apostle wrote the letter? Why did the apostle wrote the letter? Right, this is important for us. The apostle Paul also struggle with this accusation. He said when he came to the Galatian church, he told the Galatians these words in his letter to the Galatians. He said, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. This is when he came to Antioch in Pisidia and he was sick. And 
he gives to understand to us in this letter that the people, he looked bad. He said, listen to what he says. And though my condition was a trial to you, I did not, you did not scorn me or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. Right? He, he looked bad when he came to them preaching the gospel. And the Jews accused him of being cursed by God and of heresy. Look at this sick man. You think if God was with him, he would be looking this way? He would be sick as it is? I mean, I am trying to draw out the biblical and apostolic view of sufferings. That we do not relate sufferings to God's disapproval necessarily. Yes, there are sufferings for disobedience indeed he deals with it in this letter but there is a type of sufferings of which God makes us partakers one of the central themes of this letter we have several themes in this letter one of them is this you want to if you can and you are uh, taking notes you want to write this down is God's divine election and our sufferings as part of God's sanctification and sovereignty. We read this in chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 21 of this letter says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. Right, we see here the intention. He says, for this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you may walk in his footsteps. Right? The apostle is not shining, he's not shining away from the fact that this would be part of our lives. That conformity to him, seeking him, will actually bring us in conflict with this world. Another essential point of this letter is this. This letter seeks to form a heavenly word, W-A-R-D, a heavenly word worldview. That is, we must look upon ourselves as sojourners, passing through, not of this world, longing for the heavenly abode. That is what this letter seeks to instill in our hearts. That we do not live with our tempests all the way to the ground. But that we live light. That we live our lives in the view of what is to come. And not as though we will live here for a thousand years. He wants for us to have a, a longing for heaven. A desire for heaven. And part of the sufferings that we encounter are exactly these. They're the craft of our Heavenly Father to not make us comfortable in this world. Because that's the leaning of our hearts. When we are comfortable, we cling to, to it, right? We, we are comfortable in the world. Uh, so sufferings served as that catalyst that God uses to make us uncomfortable and makes us long for the heavenly abode. We read this in first uh, in, in the second chapter in verse twelve says, Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, gave, which wage war against your soul. Right? The apostle says, Beloved, I urge you. The word means imminency. This is important. This is imperative. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Right? It is clear. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. The accent of the scripture is to flee away from these things that appeal to our flesh. Right? So he says, for these things wage war against your soul. Right? It's not that these things are just neutral. It's not that you can expose yourselves to these things and not to be affected. Right? But he says, abstain. There's a sense of urgency to it. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Right? He's not passive. He's not saying, well, you may. He's saying, abstain from them. Because these things do wage war against your souls. They're not good for you. Don't expose yourself to them. Also, another point that this letter makes is this. It seeks to form and build up our faith. It seeks to form and build up our faith. In chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Right? He's not running away from the fact that there are sufferings. But he's moving our view, he's moving our gaze from the here and now, but he wants us to look upon the foundation of our faith. The fact that he has set us apart. He has redeemed us. He wants us to draw strength from that in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Now, the, 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 the next point is about unity of the body and the cornerstone. This letter speaks about unity, the unity of the body of Christ and Him as a cornerstone. Now this is very important. He says in chapter 2 verses 4 through 6, He says these words, As you have come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? He, he's given us that reality that we are being conformed to the cornerstone. We do not grasp this concept in these modern days, but the cornerstone was that found that that stone upon which all the other stones in the building were lined up to. They needed to be in complete alignment with the cornerstone. And he says, this is the purpose. You are being built up as in a spiritual house. And then he gives us the nature of this building. He says, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This calls for conformity to Him. For conformity to Christ. And then it says in verse 6, For stand in Scripture. For stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. If you pay attention to the language that is used for us who are being built up into this cornerstone, into this holy priesthood, it is the same language that is used to describe also the cornerstone. This tells us of the sovereignty of God. It is the same language that is described of Him. He was chosen to be that cornerstone, so are we chosen to be part of Him. This clings to conformity. Apart from Him, there is nothing. And that is the purpose of God working in those who are truly His. That is the desire that the Holy Spirit places in us. That is what God is working in us. Conformity to that cornerstone. And this is not just poetry. It is indeed the reality of every believer. A longing for Christ, a desire for righteousness. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who thirst after righteousness, for there shall be filled. Blessed are you when you are maligned, when are all sorts of bad things set upon you, or in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last point we want to make, and these points are not exhaustive of this letter, but these are the ones that the Lord seemed to uh, put in my heart as relevant for us. A call to holiness and conformity to God. A call to holiness and conformity to God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This verse does not need much of an explanation as it does need meditation. Because it's quite simple. So we have all these points in regards of what we will see in this letter. Now that we have established 
a simple understanding and outline for our letter. Let us plunge into the exegesis of the letter. Uh, pay attention to verses 1 and 2. We're going to spend time in verses 1 and 2. We're not going to go any further today. But I think that it is important for us to see what is laid out for us here. First of all, the Apostle opens up his epistle in the traditional greeting, the traditional apostolic greeting. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Immediately, he is flaunting, and I'm saying this in a good way, he's putting, setting before his readers his rank. Now, why is this important? It is important because this is letting us know that he who is writing this letter is not only a man giving us opinions of men, but what he is saying is, this is the word of Christ, and it is to be obeyed. So he is establishing his identity. He is saying, I am an apostle. I am speaking on behalf of Christ, the Lord of the church. So what I'm about to say needs to be obeyed. Now he says uh, in the second paragraph, we see that he gives us the recipient of the letter. He says, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right? We immediately see who were the recipients of this letter. And now this is important for us to understand because like we said at the beginning, that we must endeavor to grasp the letter in the same manner that those first recipients would have understood it. Because there is only one meaning of a scripture, but there is an infinitude of applications. But we must understand there is only one meaning. We cannot make like... For example, Dr. Arsis Pro said we cannot make this a wax nose. Scripture is not Plato. We cannot shape it in whichever shape we want. It has an intention. It has an author. It has a meaning. This is one of the doctrines recovered from the Reformation. That the scripture is uh, cohesive. The scripture is understandable. It's not something mystical that we need to interpret in the light of our whims or our preferences. But it seeks to conform us to it. It has a purpose. So we must seek to understand the intention of the author. Now, verses 2. Verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to give you five points of these verses. The first thing we see is we see the recipients of the letter. The second point is we see that the letter speaks of election. Or being chosen by God. The third point speaks of election according to the foreknowledge of God. Now this is important because you see. Foreknowledge here means not only God knowing about us. Indeed he did. But foreknowledge here means what the scripture calls epignosis. 
And this is important because what is epignosis? This talks about an intimate relationship that God had with us before the foundation of the world. That is, He did not know of us, but He knew us. He loved us. This is what that means. It has an intimate knowledge in mind. So what, it, what this is telling us is that according to that love that God had for us before, He predestined us unto salvation. This is what that means. So what is this telling us is that the reason you are saved, the reason you love Him, the reason that you were elected for Him was because He loved you first. Which resounds to the words of the Apostle John. We love Him because He loved us first. The other point that is made here is that the Spirit is actively Working in sanctification, producing in us obedience. The Spirit is actively working in us, producing sanctification and obedience. In the last point, predestination unto redemption. That we were designed to be redeemed. That whatever took place in the mind of the Godhead, we were conceived in His mind for redemption. So whatever took place in the mind of the Godhead in eternity past, when the decree of God, which decree is eternal, also, uh, Dr. Joel Beek speaks of the, the eternal decree of God. The eternal decree of God is not eternal as God is eternal. And this is important for us. I don't know how to explain that, but it's the truth. But whenever the God had conceived us in His mind, He loved us and predestinated us to be redeemed. That God does not conceive a relationship with human beings apart from His Son. God does not conceive a relationship with human beings apart from His Beloved. And this is important for us to understand. Because we see, therefore, that our redemption and the drama that necessitates for this redemption to take place was not plan B. But it was the actual decree of God that these things were to take place. Now we must note in passing through here that the first, in the first two verses, in these verses we find embedded in the fabric of the text the three persons of the Godhead. We see the Father, we see the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We find the Father electing a people for His beloved Son. 
we find the Son offering a sacrifice of blood for His elected people, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, actively sanctifying and preserving these elect people. Right from the offset of the letter, we see this rich theology, this, this rich Trinitarian theology set before us in an organic way. We have the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit actively bringing this salvation to pass. Now the author of the epistle wants from the beginning, he wants his readers to understand the nature and advantageous position of their salvation. He wants from the beginning for them to understand from the offset of the letter. He wants them to understand the nature and advantageous position of their salvation. He also desires for them to link all that it is taking place. Remember the background. They're being persecuted. They're being taken to the stake. They're being uh, maligned. They're being accused of being cursed by God. All these things he wants them to link and their circumstances to this great reality. What reality? That's a question before us. What reality? The fact that they have been chosen according to God's love, His foreordination, the work of the Holy Spirit, working sanctification unto obedience, and that all that is made possible by the blood of Christ. These are the realities that must overwhelm our thinking. When encountering the trials of life and the sufferings of life, these are the realities that must overwhelm our thinking. We in the 21st century, as Christians, are not exempted from this divine prescription. And this is the application part of this. We in the 21st century, as Christians, are not exempted from this divine prescription, which is to have a biblical worldview and understanding of our lives, purpose, and suffering. That is why we see today an increasing rate in depression, suicide, and proliferation of the culture of death, which is the outcome of having removed the image of God from the thinking of man. Once, once this hope had been removed from our thinking, there is nothing left but futility. And this is Important for us to see. Because you see in the pagan worldview. All of our sufferings. All of our tragedies. All of our uh, trials. Serve no purpose. But one of the greatest truths of the Christian worldview is that. There is no futility in our sufferings. 
But we trust and know with certainty that all has a purpose and it is working to an end that there is a personal, intentional will working all things for our good and to His glory. That we are not left to chance and the disparity of this world to the godless worldview that says, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And that's why you see today in society the increasing rate of suicide. Right, we pay attention to what is being pumped into the minds of our children to the educational systems, the secular educational, educational systems, and on the media. All is futility. It's a godless worldview. We must understand when we remove from the thinking of men the biblical worldview that says there is a God who in all things He is at work, we are left to nothing. And when this life takes from us the joys that offers, we are left with disparity. And this is what we see in, 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 uh, in many, uh, if not in most of what we see in, uh, in the social media and in, in, in the movies. This futility, this dystopian worldview, that is, is a grim worldview, full of despair. Like Francis Schaeffer used to say, that we are crossing the line of despair. He said that 40 years ago. Man has crossed the line of despair. What that means is this. That we, and I'm saying we, as the society in which we live, the secular worldview has no moral foundation to cope with the issues of life. They have no, no moral strength to face the issues of life. The harshness of the fallen world. And since they don't have a biblical foundation, they see all that happens to them as random events. And they see themselves as the futile victims of random events and chance. There is no hope. There is no foundation. And all of a sudden, death looks more appealing. But this is not what we see in the biblical worldview. It reminds us, this reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul to the Roman church in chapter 8, verses 28 and 30. Let us contrast the biblical worldview with the despair of the culture. Listen to what it says. He says, verse 28, Romans 8, 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, right, and in passing through here, we got to meet the criteria, right? He's talking about 
His elect, His people. That means us. He says, and we know that for those who love God, He says, God works all things together for good. If you have an ESB, it probably say all things work together. But in the Greek, the construction says, but God works all things. How many things? All things. Not just the good things or the things that are pleasurable to us, but all things. God works all things together for a good. What a difference, right? What a difference. Because the biblical worldview informs us that even though we are going through the trial, we are going through the fire, we know that He is at work. We can rest and sure that our sufferings are the design of our loving and caring Father who is working His purpose in us. We are not left to futility. We are not left victims of random events. But we can know that in all things He's at work. And it says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then He says to us, for those whom He foreknew, right, there's that epigenosis again, that intimate love for God, from God to us. For He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And immediately, He's telling us that all the working of these things, whether they're good or bad or joyful or painful, all these things are, are serving, are underlining a purpose. Which is what? To be conformed to the image of God. To the image of His Son. And somebody has said that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief. A man who knew sufferings. He also said that the Master that the slave is not greater than his master. God taught his son hardship. The father did not spare his son from the sufferings and miseries of this life, of which we have made liable, we have been made liable by the fall of men, by the sin. Of our forefathers. And it says. That we have been made liable. To these miseries. And if the father did not spare him. From these miseries. But rather through them. 
taught him humility. And not that he needed to know these things, but the scripture speaks of him submitting to the Father in all things. What Paul is saying to us, that all these things are working this purpose in us. Conformity to Christ. And then he says that we are being conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the first among many brothers. And that is important for us to understand why. Because the purpose of our salvation is that we will be like him. Right? And this calls us, therefore, if we are being formed to Him, if we are being conformed to His image, then it follows that we must seek to know Him so that we may know how we are to walk. Right? It's not rocket science. Right? You would think. But it's really very simple. If the purpose is conformity to Him, then it follows that I must therefore seek to know him that I may know how am I to behave. Approve what he approves and disapproves what he disapproves. It is not left to my own conscience to decide by itself, but it must be informed by him who is holy, to whom I am called to be in conformity to, because that is what the Holy Spirit is producing in us. Verse 30, Romans 8, 30 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Right, this is what theologians call the golden chain of salvation. Because we see a succession of, a sequence of things. We see that he predestined, and because he predestined, he called, and because he called, he justified, and because he justified, he also glorified. And you notice he's speaking in present terms, which indicates to us that for the apostle, this was not yet to be seen. This was not yet to be understood or hoped for as though he did not have certainty. But this is certainty. He saw it as a fact. As something that has taken place. So let us take heart and draw strength from this truth. This is one of the reasons why we must protect our minds that our hearts might not be robbed from this great hope. Right? Let us dwell in these things. Let's, let this mind of Christ be in us. That who being in the form of God did not consider it as robbery to live heaven and come to the earth and become one of us and submit himself unto death in obedience to the Father to rescue us from the domain of darkness and our sins. So we're going to stop here this morning and I pray that God remind us of this truth.
that He has a purpose and He's working His purpose in us. And yes, this will also include sufferings. But we are not left to despair, but rather to understand that this is the design of God for our sanctification to the end of bringing us to conformity to Him. So we're going to stop here in verse 1 and 2. And we'll go, uh, we are going to continue in our uh, journey through this letter. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for this morning in which you have provided for us your word, Father. We are grateful for it. We thank you. Thank you for every blessing bestowed upon us, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the truth you revealed to us, you illumined to us in your word. I pray, Father, that this mind be in us, that we may, may learn to trust you, that we may learn, Father, to rely upon you, and, and that you will not suffer us to, to fall to the side, Father. We, we cling to this promise that you are a loving Father who will not suffer us to fall to the side, but you will discipline us if necessary, but you will not lose not even one of us, Father. We thank you for this. I pray, Father, for our lives and our needs. Father, sanctify us and give us the strength to grow in holiness, in righteousness, in conformity to Jesus Christ. And that when we are maligned for this, I pray, Father, that you give us, gives us, uh, that you give us a strength, and that we may learn to rejoice in this, for we are partaking of the sufferings of Christ. We thank you, Father. We also thank you for the food we are about to receive and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In this, we rejoice. Thank you, Father. We are glad. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat>